That was really weird, right? <laughs> it was really weird. If you've been with us for some or all of the series so far, that is not the typical background music that we've had for that uh, Radical Jesus kind of intro video. Uh, if, it, it was probably a little bit disorienting, kind of uncomfortable, maybe felt a little bit chaotic and, and uh, yeah, as we've engaged with the different topics in this series, from things like vaccines to women leading to racism, it's possible, I would say hopefully likely, that at some point you felt disoriented, uncomfortable, maybe even anxious or nervous. And I just want to say that's okay. That is the necessary point uh, of contact with something better, some, something that is uh, healthier with engagement with these topics. So I think that's really okay. This piece of music that we just uh, listened to uh, was created by this guy, Chris Chaffee. He's a sonic sonification artist. He's also the director of Stanford's Center for Computer Research and in Music and Acoustics. So really smart guy. He, together with three UC Berkeley grad students, here's what they did, they had a little special project. And so they took uh, all the climate data they could find from the past 1,200 years, it's publicly available, peer-reviewed, and they turned it into music. They took all of the, the different data points and made them into notes. Because if you're, uh, well, maybe you're not like me in this way. I love numbers and graphs. I get really excited by a well-done graph. But even for me, at some point, numbers start to glaze over the brain and you get jellified. And uh, it's actually a well-known area of research to show how different ways to understand and present data, including sonically, uh, can really help us engage in a new and fresh way. So let's listen to that again. Now that we know what we're listening to, and uh, as we do those plucky notes that you hear, and let, let's make sure it's loud enough so we can hear, the plucky notes are uh, average annual or annual uh, global temperatures, uh, and the, uh, the kind of the drone sound you hear in the background is the uh, carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere in parts per million. And the, uh, we've cut out the first 800 years. I'm going to just show you the last last. 300 years or so, because from about 850, when it started in the Middle Ages, until, you know, the Industrial Revolution, sometime in the late 1700s, the song is really boring and monotonous. It's pretty much the exact same. The drone is the same note. The little plinks stay all down in the, in the lower register. And so we're going to cut in uh, right at the end of the 1600s uh, because it's really like late 1700s, mid-1800s where with the Industrial Revolution kind of uh, you know, speeding up in Europe, widespread deforestation in Europe at the same time, you start to see things shift and change. And then especially in the mid and late 1900s. It kind of turns into this kind of chaotic, high-pitched wail. And again, this is not an artist bias trying to creatively communicate something of his opinion. This is just scientific data. 
And so let, let's listen and watch that again. We are talking about climate change and the way of Jesus today. So uh, I think this topic is also extremely disorienting. It's hard to know maybe what to believe or think or what's real. If you're like me, uh, you grew up with a a multitude of messages. Maybe not, but I did. I I grew up with, and Taylor uh, McFall and I were talking about this one earlier this week, uh, uh, Captain Planet on one side, right? Anyone else? Captain Planet, he's a hero going to take pollution down to? Yes, that's exactly right. Some of you guys are so young. And uh, so I grew up with Captain Planet on one hand, and I also grew up with kind of a sense that when it comes to the earth and the environment, it's all going to burn anyways, and Jesus is going to come back and fix it. So it's really not that important. So I, I think I got that message kind of from Christian circles, although I'm not specifically sure I ever heard that directly said. So I grew up with a mix of messages. And so this one's been a disorienting one for me. Maybe it has for you too. And so here's kind of where we're heading this morning. So to help us, to, uh, we're going to understand the topic a little bit better, look at some of the, uh, some of the information, some of the facts and the factions. We're going to understand the topic from a high-level view because not everyone even uh, maybe uh, is on the same page with that one. So we're going to try to understand the topic, and then we're going to dive headlong into the Scriptures to discover what does Jesus say, what does God say about the way forward with Christ when it comes to climate change and care for the environment. So we believe uh, as Christians, and here at Tallgrass at the Well, we believe that fundamentally God has spoken through his word. And so we're not just left when we consider many things, including these kind of topics, we're not just left with our own devices or uh, the loudest public opinion or anything like that. We've got God's word to inform us, and it has real meaning for us today. And so the, the, the memory verse that we've been going through throughout this series that's been grounding us is Isaiah 40, verse 8. So we're going to uh, repeat that one one more time together, see how well you've got it. I'll put it on the screen, but I'm going to hesitate. If you uh, want to take the challenge, close your eyes and see if you can do it from memory. It's cool if not, but uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and, and repeat this one together as hopefully we've begun to memorize it. All right, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers... The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's right. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, please guide us as we talk about uh, climate change and how to think Christianly and live Christianly. How do you want us to lead and live when it comes to this issue? 
Please show us. Thank you for your word. Amen. All right, so let's just do a quick little basic overview of the climate change topic. So first of all, uh, some of these basics. Number one, the climate is changing. So climate is different from weather. So weather is short-term. Uh, it's very variable. It can go up and down relatively quickly. It's hard to predict and forecast more than seven to 10 days out. There's a lot of chaos in there. Uh, so not, we're not talking about weather. Climate is the average of weather over large areas over time. And so this one is global in scope. It, it does not change quickly. It, uh, it, it goes in a relatively slow change pattern. And so it's actually relatively easy to predict. It's not very untenable to do that. So next, uh, global temperatures are increasing rapidly recently. Uh, especially uh, in the last 50 years, definitely in the last few hundred years, global temperatures uh, are going up on average yearly. And uh, uh, the current rate is, uh, is, is kind of unprecedented. At least in the last 500,000 years, uh, the data is telling us it, it hasn't been increasing this rapidly uh, uh, for at least 500,000 years. Uh, at the same time, greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane, they're increasing in our atmosphere also at a rapid, unprecedented rate. So as we look back, it seems uh, pretty clear from the data that we haven't hit, had this amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere at least for the last 300, or the last 3 million years. That's a big number. So before humans, this, the, the levels are pretty high and they're, they're moving up at an unprecedented rate. Um, what's next? Greenhouse gases do seem to be driving climate change. Uh, all of the models, the predicting, everything is as it would be if this was driving it. And so that's an interesting one. Finally, well, not finally, I've got two more here. Carbon dioxide is spiking from human activity. So all of the burning of fossil fuels, especially, although there's some other stuff, it's directly relatable back to human activity, especially the burning of fossil fuels, which are carbon rich. They burn, they come out of the ground, and then they combine with oxygen to make carbon dioxide. All right, and then the last one. Current warming rate is expected to significantly impact both the environment and humans. And we're already starting to see some of that around the globe. And so this one, uh, yeah, so think about your body. So even a few degrees in our body makes a big difference, right? 98.6, you know, it's not that a handful of three, four, five, six degrees up until where the fever is going to start producing permanent damage. And the same is true, it seems, with our environment. There's a lot of factors playing in, but it seems like that it's, it's uh, even a few te uh, temperature degrees are significant. Uh, the biggest impact from hotter temperatures globally will lead to things like more melting ice in the poles, which will then drain into the oceans, raise sea levels. And so that's not a huge problem in itself, except for a grand majority of a lot of uh, society around the globe lives in low-lying areas. Major cities are right down there. And so uh, the disruption uh, because of widespread flooding in uh, population areas and uh, in areas that are producing crops, I mean, it's, gonna, it's already causing a problem in a number of areas. 
Um, there's going to be a greater frequency, and already seems to be, of severe weather. So severe weather. Uh, it, we're, you know, if, if you're a graph nerd like me, think of a bell curve. And so it's really, it, in the past, it's only been the, the top, you know, like little bit where we have the severest weather. But as we shift that bell curve to the right, then all of a sudden you start to have more and more of the severe weather. So things like uh, hurricanes and droughts and flooding and stuff like that. Uh, the, more, it, the more that happens, the more it's going to impact us. So whereas you used to have a once in a hundred years storm, now you're getting those every 10 years. And so that, that definitely will add up as it already has been. Uh, let's see here. Disruption to crops and wildlife are pretty uh, expected uh, from this stuff. Uh, decrease in climate uh, uh, or in, in environments for many crops and animals, a lot of our main food crops are actually not that resilient to change in temperature or uh, humidity. So uh, at least some disruption there. Uh, the ocean is absorbing some of the carbon dioxide, but it's also changing the way that the acid or the acidity of the ocean is. And so uh, that's affecting things too, including fisheries and uh, many other things. So this is very uh, a very complex and interrelated issue, right? So as I was doing my research for this, I was like, oh my Lord, this is complex. It's very difficult. How do we think about this? How do we think about this? What seemed clear to me is that uh, no matter what we think about climate change, what we think about how much is actually happening or will happen, the impact on humanity is going to be uh, varied. Different parts of the world, different people groups, different areas are going to be affected differently. And it seems that disproportionately, the poorer in our world are going to be impacted more. They're going to have less resources to adjust. And so uh, folks like us here in the quote-unquote rich West, we're going to probably be able to adjust a lot easier than folks around the world that live in much more poverty. And so there's going to be disruption, likely globally, uh, on a humanitarian scale, and uh, so much so that the, uh, our Department of Defense has identified climate change, not so much because we're afraid of warmer temperatures, but for the resulting humanitarian crisis that's likely to happen around the globe, where you're going to have mass migrations of people away from areas where they're no longer able to live, and that that could be a huge disruptive issue in our world. All right, so that's going to be the, the, the extent of our facts section. There's a lot more here we could go into. But this seems to be the high-level uh, view that's accepted by the general uh, consensus around uh, climate change scientists and folks in the field. And so my main goal today is not primarily to convince you to think one way or another about climate change. It's actually not my main goal. My main goal would be much more to help us to be informed and to understand how we should move forward. So uh, a quote that's been really helpful to me as I consider issues like this uh, comes from St. Augustine. He lived in like four, you know, eight, four, 400 AD, and he's considered by many to be one of the most influential, influential figures uh, influencing Western thought. And uh, he's talk, he talks about how important it is for, uh, for Christians to be informed scientifically so that as we discuss our faith and these issues with people who don't know Christ, that it doesn't put a stumbling block unnecessarily in their way to understanding and embracing the gospel. Here's the quote. I love this one. See, see if it resonates with you. He says, usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, the other elements in the world, about all kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. Now, it is a disgraceful 
an even dangerous thing for an infidel, we don't use that a ton these days, someone who doesn't believe in God, to, let's see where I lost my place here, to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense about these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. You kind of see how this might connect. The shame is not so much that an ignorant individual is derided, but that people outside the household of faith think our sacred writers held such opinions. And to the great loss of those whose salvation we're toiling for, the writers of our scriptures are criticized and rejected as unlearned men. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of God? There's a lot more at stake than being right or wrong about the data and climate change. We need to interface with our world in a way that helps them to understand their, uh, their great need for Christ and not just totally toss it away out of hand. So it's important for us to ask, what really is the way of Jesus when we consider things like climate change? What's the way of Jesus? So we're going to dig into the scripture now to try to answer that question. Uh, we're going to kind of uh, land, kind of a springing off point is going to be Genesis 1, 26 through 28. All right, so this is God had just created all things. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right, so what is this saying? What is this saying? Well, what seems relatively clear from the reading is there's something special about humans. There's something special. We're not just another animal species. There's something special. We're created in God's image. Nothing else has been. No animal, not even the earth, not the uh, entire universe. Only mankind is creating God's image. And God's given a mandate to humans to be fruitful Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and care for it, and rule over it. Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 26, states that humans are of greater value than the animals. Okay. He's talking, he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God cares for them. And aren't you not much more valuable than they Okay, so we're more valuable. We're called to rule and care for creation, expand human civilization. So there's a common ditch. Maybe you're already feeling it that comes up in, uh, in an, maybe a popular, somewhat popular interpretation of this passage. See if you've heard this one. It goes a little bit like this. We're more important. We humans 
All of this is for us. God told us to rule over it and reign over it. We're supposed to subdue it and use it for our purposes, no matter what the cost. We don't have to care for the earth. You know, this is kind of the much maligned and unfortunate Christian caricature that some often have. They think that Christians are the, well, the selfish brute, right? Who's burning the world for no reason other than to pave through some sort of habitat, to put up a, a strip mall just to give themselves a few more bucks, wantonly burning, pillaging, raping the earth. This is the caricature, Right? But that would actually be a biblically impermissible interpretation. That's not based on what God tells us. This passage comes right after God has created the whole world from nothing, including all the creatures, and it's his. Psalm 24 even directly says, God says, all of this is mine. I made it. So it's all God's. So are humans the owner? No, we're not the owner of creation. We're stewards Biblically speaking, all throughout the scripture, it reaffirms we are stewards of this earth. We're here to rule and care for the creation based on what God wants and how he wants to uh, manage and care for it and based on his priorities. We're supposed to lovingly cultivate. The word kabosh is the word there that uh, is uh, subdue. It doesn't mean to wrestle a bronco to the ground. The word there means gentle, caring, wise stewardship, bringing things more in line so that all can flourish. It's loving and good. So our primary responsibility must not be to just wantonly destroy so that we can get what we want. God cares for it all, including the animals. There's a ton of uh, scriptures where God's directly saying, hey, by the way, I actually really care for the animals. Psalm 50 he says, actually, all these animals are mine too. Uh, Proverbs 12, 10 says, righteous people care for their animals very well. And even you see uh, in uh, Genesis 7, where uh, the account of the, the Noah's flood and uh, God bringing the animals, and even an interesting one that uh, Taylor McFall helped me think through earlier this week, I hadn't considered, where uh, Jonah is being called to preach to the Ninevites, and God's like, I'm gonna actually destroy them unless they repent. Will you tell them so they can repent? And God says, because uh, there's a lot of people there that I love and a lot of animals. Interesting. God cares for all. And so our primary responsibility must be good, cre- uh, wise rulers over creation, right? We have to be good leaders, good rulers, not tyrants. So th- it can't be a zero-sum zero game between the interests of humanity and the interests of God's creation. It's got to be a both and. So that, that one ditch we've already seen, the ditch of like, it's all for me, I can do what I want, I don't have to care about the environment. The other ditch comes not directly from the scripture itself, but more in a reaction to this caricature, right? The other ditch would be, uh, let's, let's call it like this, humans are not special. Humans are just another animal. And so it would be, uh, it would be actually humans are like a plague to the planet. We're a drain on the resources. And since we're no more important than anything else, it actually would be better for us to let the earth go back to the way it was. You know, the earth is better off without us. Let's get it back to its virgin state. Let's reduce our footprint in this planet so much that we go to zero so that everything else can thrive, no matter the cost. And this is also not a biblically tenable position. I've got some extended family that actually would be, would be in that caricature. Uh, 
so these, uh, this extended family, uh, they, they're so concerned about keeping their, their carbon footprint to zero that they won't go visit family or really allow family to visit them because it would destroy the earth. Uh, they won't let their kids really receive presents because it's just consumerism, which pumps out more fossil fuels. Um, they berate others for using electricity or traveling, uh, refuse to be hospitable. Uh, they're, I would say, thoroughly unloving and even abusive. They've, they, all in the name of protecting the earth, they're unloving towards people and relationships. So that's not right. So kind of the hyper, the extreme uh, view over here, if this one's like uh, people can just destroy the earth, it doesn't matter. The other extreme over here would be kind of anti-human. Anti-human. Kind of like we already talked about. You know, the, the term speciesism. Have you guys ever heard that term? That one's, it's like racism, but instead of uh, thinking some races are better than the other, it's the idea that some species are better than the other. And so how dare humans think that we're better than anyone else? Actually, uh, you know, we would, we would consider more of it like a biocentric view. We're all just creatures and everyone's equally important. But that view is actually fatally flawed. I would propose... Because if humans are no more important than anyone else, if we're not in a position of authority or responsibility to care for the planet, then we have no responsibility to care for the planet. We're just another animal. And so we have no more foundation for wise stewardship. So I just kind of, I'm I'm circling this drain a little bit here. It's gotta be a both and, right? Scripturally speaking, we've gotta care for people and for God's creation, right? Any, any view that, that goes too far extreme is not uh, scripturally appropriate. And so for a Christian, those are outside the bounds of where we can land on that issue. Um, I'd like to offer you another angle, maybe uh, one angle that you haven't maybe thought of. One angle that's been really helpful for me as I've considered this topic. And it's been helpful for me to even kind of change some of my perspective in recent years. Here's the angle. Hang with me for a second on this one. Did you know that it's not God's plan for you to go to heaven and float around like an angel for the rest of eternity? Did you know that that's actually not what the Bible teaches? That's the common caricature of the afterlife, right? We're trying to escape the earth, right? And get to uh, uh, maybe a disembodied state or at least somewhere away from the earth. That is actually not biblically tenable, Biblical perspective is that the eternal state for humans is actually right here on this planet. Follow me on this. On this earth, it's not going to be utterly destroyed. It's not going to be winked out of existence and God create a new, a new planet to replace it. God's uh, plan for us is right here to rule over this earth now and in the future with him in, on, on this planet. So where do I get this from? Uh, so if this is true, right, that would have significant bearing on how we think about environmental stewardship, right? What if this really is our forever home? That might be important. So uh, from God's word, there, there's a, uh, okay, another angle here. That's where we're at. Just a few scriptures that uh, affirm, and there's many others, that uh, this earth is our eternal state. So Psalm 37, 29, the righteous will possess the earth and they will live forever on it. Uh, Psalm 104, 
God has established the earth on its foundations. It will not be moved from its place forever. And Ecclesiastes 1.4, the earth remains forever. So if, if you're a student of the Bible or if you've been around church a while, hopefully there's a little catch, right? And you're like, wait, actually there are scriptures talking about how the earth is going to get destroyed, right? Well, let's look at those. Look at those. Uh, let's just take a few that are representative. Luke uh, where am I at here? Luke 21, 33, Jesus himself says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 6, and it's talking right here about the Noah flood here as we jump into this passage. By these waters, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same world or word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Well, it does talk about the earth getting destroyed, but that word destroy, the Greek word, let's see, I missed it here, apolois, I, I butchered that one, but it starts with a name. For destroyed here, do you notice that it used the same word to talk about what happened to the earth during the flood? So, the flood happened, there was a lot of destruction, there was a lot of change on the earth, a lot of death, yes, uh, especially of the ungodly, uh, evil civilization being wiped out, but it was the same earth. The earth didn't wink out, and then a new one in its place. Uh, it talks about being laid bare. The earth is going to be laid bare. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean being completely destroyed, uh, at least in the way we think about it, like total annihilation. The, it talks about the heavens disappearing, right? Uh, let's see here, yeah, passing away. So these words don't necessarily entail annihilation, but they do imply radical change, right? But these things can mean to pass out of sight, right? Just like they can today. A, 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 a quote from theologian Herman Bavnik about a little over 100 years ago. Writing around 1900, he said, God, God's honor consists precisely in the fact that he redeems and renews the same humanity, the same world, the same heaven, the same earth that's been corrupted and polluted by sin. Just as everyone in Christ is a new creation in whom the old has passed away and everything has become new, same word, pass away there, so this world passes away in its present form in order that out of its womb at God's word of power, to give birth and being to a new world. So then if this planet really is our eternal home and it's not just gonna be completely wiped out, um, we would do best to steward it well now, right? Right, does that just make sense? If this planet is our eternal home, we would do well to care for it well now, no matter what happens at the end. Because not, in, not only is the earth going to endure, but also these are training days. These are training days. For Christians, these days are being our training days. We're becoming who we will be for eternity. There's a continuity between our life now and our life at the end, our life forever in heaven on earth. And so uh, that's why Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So our decisions, our training now as stewards of creation have a difference, have an impact on who we will be with eternity 
or in eternity. And Paul says later in 2 Timothy, he says, if we endure all these things in these times now, we will reign with Christ forever. And so remember the Genesis where God gave uh, Adam and Eve and all of their descendants the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and reign over it? That command has never been rescinded. The fall has really messed it up in a lot of ways, but God is in the process of redeeming, restoring not only our bodies, uh, but this earth, and we are training for who we will be then. These are training days. We need to learn to be good stewards now because that's going to be our job in eternity. So we're training now. Yes, Jesus is coming back. Yes, creation is groaning. Yes, there's a calamity coming, but we would do right uh, to rule well now. We're practice, or called to practice godly stewardship now to the best of our abilities for the care not only of the earth, but also of the poor and the disadvantaged. So circling back to our original question, what does it look like for a Christian to engage well with the topic of climate change? So some sort of engagement is needed, right? We can't embrace either extreme. We've got to be engaged well for the cause of human flourishing, and long-term sustainability of the earth. So first application that I see, bring your eco-anxiety to the Lord. Now this could be eco-anxiety, fear, fear, fear about, hey, it's so bad, the earth's gonna uh, get destroyed, everything's gonna be terrible. There's that fear. There's also the the flip side fear that all of it is is fake and it's a hoax and we're being duped and it's gonna hurt us. No matter what your eco-fear is, bring it to the Lord. Bring your fear to the Lord. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, don't be anxious about anything. Not like you're wrong if you have been, but that's not God's will for you. But, and since you are anxious for many things, bring your anxious thoughts to God through prayer so that you can live rooted and guarded by his peace, the peace of God which surpasses all of our understanding. It guards us. We need that guarding. It's only from a place of God's peace significant peace that we'll be able to wisely and effectively steward well, right? That anxiety needs to be rooted out. Next, no matter what you think about climate change, we're clearly called to care for and be concerned about the poor and the disadvantaged, especially considering that climate change will disproportionately affect the poorer and the disadvantaged around our world. And that probably goes for animals too, right? They can't, uh, they, they can't advocate for themselves. The poor need to be cared for. I wonder how, to, how, how we're supposed to do that. Micah 6.8, he's actually told you, oh man, what is good God has. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. A lifestyle of humble walking with God includes necessarily doing justice. Now, justice doesn't just mean uh, you know, getting people arrested although it can sometimes include that, but biblical justice is wide ranging and it boils down to essentially being willing to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of another so that things are right. And then this kindness. Kindness isn't just humanly keepable niceness to try to keep the smile on and not rock the boat. This is a deep, meaningful thing where you look in the eyes and where you move forward to help in ways that really engage with the needs We need to beware of any position on climate change that would uh, effectively keep us from being able to keep this this view of human flourishing and of our call to do justice and love kindness. 
So for some, this is gonna include things like activism. We need folks who are advocating on a more broad scale for policies and for things like that so that the poor and the disadvantaged can be cared for so that we can wisely anticipate what's coming, right? That's just wise. Some will be advocating. Others will engage more directly with the poor and the disadvantaged across the world through giving and uh, through direct support through organizations that do that specifically. Others are gonna care for the poor right here. All of that is needed. And there's a wide range of opportunities to do that. Um, Since the majority, it seems, of the scientific community who are in this field uh, uh, think that the evidence is leading towards something of genuine concern, and since it seems like a lot of nations around the world are concerned and are putting forth money towards this, you know when nations are putting forth money towards stuff, it's usually worth paying attention to, Uh, we uh, we should do our part. It's, it's something to consider. So 20%, let's see, we, we can take uh, steps in our life uh, to help make a difference. So uh, 20% of the global emissions uh, are, are directly related to use, use of things in the home. And so a little bit can add up to a lot. So one thing you could do is change the way you set your thermostat in the winter and the summer. I mean, if you can, if you don't have health conditions or whatever that prevent you, even just an extra degree or two one way or the other can cause a significant effect on the way we uh, you know, use energy. Uh, transportation is also a big one. So even small steps towards, uh, towards being more efficient with your transportation. You don't have to stop driving, but do you really have to take four or five trips a day on something? Could you carpool? Could you be more strategic or efficient? Uh, food spoilage is a thing. Okay, drive more efficiently. Food spoilage, use your, efficient, uh, your food more efficiently. Food spoilage account is 40% of all the food in the U.S. Spoils. So climate change is, pre- is predicted to have a net famine impact. So there's going to be less available food unless we've other technologies and stuff uh, mitigate that. So if we've got less food coming, being able to, uh, to more efficiently use our food would be wise. 40% is, goes to spoilage. So simple things like reducing your food waste through not ordering as large of a portion or using up your leftovers or uh, uh, shopping for produce and other perishables that can be frozen if they're getting close. These, some of these things are small, but they can add up. Recycling well. So I put well in asterisks here because uh, recycling doesn't seem to be the silver bullet everyone was hoping, but it can help, especially if we learn to do it well. A lot of the inefficiencies in the systems uh, are coming from folks not knowing, well-meaning, but not knowing exactly what they're supposed to put in the recycling bin. And so it literally gunks up their machines and it causes a lot of inefficiencies in the system. So we can do our part to learn, what does your local recycling center take? What are you supposed to put in the bin? And what other stuff are you not supposed to? Uh, For Howie's, it's things uh, like paper, cardboard, uh, aluminum, those are no-brainers. The plastics, they only take numbers one and two. So if you don't know what number it is, don't put it in there. Chances are it'll make it worse rather than better. And that seems weird maybe, but learning how to recycle well can go a long way. And the cost is just so, uh, the the cost benefit is just so favorable. A few more just quickly here. Consciously reduce what you buy. Doesn't have to be huge, but uh, one thing you could do is to choose a few purchases a month not to make, even if they're small, and then send that money to organizations that are aiding the poor around the world. Could be an easy way to do it. Uh, plant a garden. This one, the, the McFalls were sharing with me, and I, I hadn't thought about it, but it's, it's actually pretty, pretty intense. Uh, the, the benefit is, is both practical and psychological, the way that it 
helps you to re-kind of connect with the reality that our, our life and our food comes from the earth. In our, in our day of supply chain and uh, urbanization, all that stuff, not necessarily bad, but it does tend to disconnect us from the earth and from the environment. So there can be a lot that can come from planting a garden. You can talk to Taylor and Mary if you have more questions about that one. Our last one is just going to be maybe the most important. Like all of us, in every conversation at all times, we need to be ready to share the hope of the gospel. For many, especially if they don't have Christ, the earth is all they got. And so there's a lot of reason for fear. But we have a hope that transcends that and leads us to be good stewards. So there's, I think, maybe a unique window of opportunity these days on this topic to bring the hope of the gospel into the conversation. Invite folks to meet Christ, right? And so uh, let's, end, let's end with one last scripture. How, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do it? Okay. Verse three of Philippians two, do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. No matter what you think about climate change, these are yesable positions, right? You know, the, the tips for working across faction sheet that Ben uh, passed out, that's, we've still got some back there in the first teaching. This is number six. Look for yesable positions, even with people that you disagree with, things that you can all agree on. We should look to our, uh, the interests of others. Have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. He in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all, this is good rulership. This is what it looks like to be a good ruler. And we can follow Jesus in this. This is the way of Jesus. So as uh, the band comes up, let's end as we have each week by reminding ourselves of the things in common that we believe and that we hold true with folks who uh, have been following Christ uh, through the ages, the Apostles' Creed. And so will you stand with us as we uh, read the Apostles' Creed and then take the Lord's Supper? All right. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. There we go. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So now, uh, as in previous weeks, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So you'll come down the middle aisle and then fan out and then come back to your seat. And so as we do this, as we celebrate, we remember that God is the one who provides, and yet he also links us together. So uh, 
If you are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is a great opportunity for you to pray, even in the quiet of your own heart, and to tell God that you want him, that you believe he died on the cross for you. And then you would be welcome to come and enjoy communion with us, celebrate with us. So by taking the bread and taking the cup, you proclaim that you believe that Jesus' blood and his body sacrificed on the cross for us uh, atone for our sins and bring us back into right relationship with God and that we will live forever with him. So we invite you to go ahead and come now. And then when, once you get back to your seats, you can take the cup and the juice when you're ready. And I would invite you to keep your eyes open to be reminded that this isn't just an us and Jesus thing, but that we are bonded together with brothers and sisters in Christ. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.